Well, good morning, everybody. It is that time of year again. So uh, strap yourselves in and uh, let's see where we go this morning. Um, yeah, Mal always uh, asks me when, he, when I do this, he just says, what's God speaking to you about or what has God spoken to you about uh, over the last year or months, weeks? Uh, and that's quite a challenge, I find, because that actually presupposes that I listen to God um, and hear what he's actually saying to me. And I know in this culture of busyness uh, and doing everything but spending time with God, it's very easy to uh, not listen to God and not hear what he's saying. So it's important for me to come back and actually spend some time thinking about uh, all these things. So it's actually a good opportunity, I find. So thank you, Malcolm, for making me do it, which is something that I ne- wouldn't necessarily always do, lift my own devices. Um, so this morning, I think... Uh, well, God has been saying to me what I've been thinking about, what um, the message that came to mind was, uh, when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven, what does that actually mean and, uh, and what does that look like? But before we get into that, as I have done over the last couple of years or two or three years, I just thought I'd look at word of the year. Anybody, anybody know what last year's word of the year were? And I've got four from different dictionaries, so you've got a, you've got a bigger chance of getting one right. Uh, Does anyone know what last year's word of the year was? Sorry? Did I hear one there? No? Uh, No guesses this year. Well, I'll give you them then. Uh, Two were quite similar. So the Oxford Dictionary and the Collins Dictionary had climate emergency and climate strike. So that's been quite prevalent in our Western culture over the last year has been the emergence of uh, climate uh, awareness, climate change, and what are we going to do in response to that and a growing awareness around these issues. The third one I've got from the Merriam-Webster's Dictionary is they, which might be a bit of a surprise to many of you, um, but this is not in the plural sense, this is in the singular sense of the word uh, and being used uh, by those who don't want to be called he or she but want to, would uh, prefer to be called they. And the last one I have, uh, which is closer to home and developed by the Macquarie Dictionary, uh, from multiple, uh, uh, a short list of multiple words, and quite a worrying one I actually found, was cancel culture. Does anyone know what ca- a cancel culture is? Uh, it's, a, it's a reaction to those people that we don't agree with something they've said or done, and so we decide we'll cancel all their achievements as a result of that and uh, ostracize them from society. So that is cancel culture. You might be, uh, obviously, Margaret Court and Israel Folau are two um, big names that have fallen foul of cancel culture over the last year. All very interesting. Um, being the woke kind of young man that I am, I like to stay with my pulse, uh, my fingers on the pulse of uh, the modern zeitgeist. Um, but uh, not at all pertinent to uh, actually what God has been saying to me over the last year, uh, which is more about his kingdom and what that looks like. And this all really stemmed from uh, a thought that uh, Tom Wright, or N.T. Wright, depending on whether he's trying to be cerebral or speak to the, uh, to the masses, um, fantastic theologian, fantastic uh, communicator of the Word of God, um, and he was talking about our views on heaven. Now, a very popular view on heaven, which actually wasn't the early Christian or the Jewish view of heaven, was that earth is down here, and heaven is up there, and when we die, we go from here to there and leave earth behind and go and be with heaven and whatever that looks like. 
Um, this is largely a view that's come out of Platonic thought or sort of Stoic philosophy, or this sort of moral philosophy that believes that the physical and the spiritual are separate and the physical will go away and the spiritual will endure and we'll go and sit on a cloud and play our harp uh, and do whatever Michelangelo visualized that we would do in his paintings. But that's not what the early Christians uh, believed. Um, this has obviously led to whole trains of thought and it's been a very important um, theological discussion and concourse over the years. We have Augustine, the Bishop of Hippo of, in North Africa. We have and this whole debate about predestination versus free will and Calvin, Luther, Calvinism versus Arminianism and then the advent of universalism where all go to heaven. And I'm not going to get into any of that today. You'll be glad to know because um, it does kind of explode your brain a little bit um, once you get into all these kind of arguments. But suffice to say that, that that view of heaven that sort of developed in the third, fourth century and was very prevalent through the Middle Ages and, uh, and that, uh, the history of the church, we're now starting to realize uh, that actually that didn't bear much relation to how the early Christian church and, and the Jewish uh, nation and uh, sort of the culture that the Bible was written into uh, believed about heaven and hell. They didn't believe that it was somewhere you go to when you die, but actually that heaven and earth were two parts of God's good creation. So you read at the beginning in Genesis in the Garden of Eden, the two were established side by side, interlocked, intersected with one another, heaven being God's realm, earth being given over to humanity, and the two existing perfectly in unity and in synchronicity. There was a sundering of that in the fall, and so God's realm and earth, the realm of humanity, were separated, and then that was brought together uh, as when Christ, in Christ's death and resurrection and ultimately will be perfectly united again in the future. So that's the view that the early church had. The great hope was not that we would die and go somewhere, but that all of the earth would be restored with heaven in perfect unity, intersecting and interlocking, and that God would literally make his dwelling place amongst man again. Um, and that's why I wanted to look at uh, that passage in Daniel, because it's uh, an amazingly prescient um, view of history, almost, um, and obviously an important event thing that God wanted to relay uh, to humanity that this is what's going to happen. The message to Daniel was basically, and to Nebuchadnezzar, of all people, I mean, why would God give a vision to this despotic ruler of the Babylonian Empire, who had no regard for God whatsoever, but yet God believed it to be important that the culture of the day, and we now understand that it's God who establishes history and he uh, makes nations rise and fall. So we have this view of the statue with a head of gold, a uh, chest of silver, bronze, and then iron. So we have the Babylonian Empire as this great splendiferous empire, sort of the height uh, of splendor in, uh, in history, and slowly becoming slightly less splendid, but uh, tougher and more um, robust. So we have the Medo-Persian Empire that came after Babylon uh, under King Cyrus, followed by the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great, and then the Roman Empire, um, which is the time into which Jesus came. And then we have this picture of this rock being carved, not by human hands, but by God. So the kingdoms that came before were built on human power and on human might. But this is a 
completely different kind of kingdom and one that Jesus came to establish. So we have this vision from Daniel 600, 600 years before Christ came. So accurate in terms of the sequencing of the nations that many believe that it couldn't possibly have been written at the time it was written because it was just too accurate. Um, but we have this picture of and this great hope that the, Jewish, the Jews had at the time that this Messiah was going to come and establish the kingdom of God here on earth. And so this rock that is carved out is Jesus, as we now, as we now know. And this passage in John where he talks about having fulfilled his work here on earth in the establishing of that kingdom. He talks about giving eternal life uh, to his people. And how does he describe eternal life? in that, uh, in that uh, passage that we just read. If you remember, it wasn't that we would go and live on a cloud with God. It was that we would know God and be one with him and know Jesus whom he sent. This is eternal life. It's not that we're going to die and go and be someplace, but that God's kingdom and earth are going to come back together. And so ultimately we have the message of Revelation. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but in Revelation 21 we see a new heaven and a new earth come down. And God's kingdom being fully established on earth and the two, earth and heaven, coming back into perfect unity and God once again dwelling on earth. But right now we're sitting in that intermediate time. God's kingdom has come in Jesus. God's kingdom will come ultimately and for always and all things will be made new at the end of time. And I guess... Hallmarks of this kingdom, we've got to understand that this is a kingdom that's fashioned by God. It's not a kingdom built on human might and human power. So it's entirely different to the, the kingdoms that preceded it. And I think we've fallen foul on this on some occasions, that we felt that God's kingdom must look like the kingdoms of the earth and must come with power and, um, uh, and might. But God says it's not some kind of theocracy where we force our views on an unwilling world, but rather it's God's kingdom. So the method of the kingdom has to match the message of the kingdom, i.e. we come as the church, energized by the Spirit, full of the Spirit, to go out in the world and to live as Jesus did in the world, vulnerable, suffering, praising, praying, misunderstood, misjudged, ultimately vindicated and celebrating just as Jesus did. So the kingdom has to look different. But why does this matter? Why does how we view heaven matter? Why is it important? And I believe it's important because it actually affects the way we live now. If we believe that we're just going to die, leave this place and go somewhere else, then we don't have to worry about what's happening right here and right now. We can just focus on heaven. We can live our own little nice lives, forget about all that's going on in the world. If it's going to hell in a handbasket, who gives a whatever, it doesn't matter because we're going somewhere else. Thank you very much. But if we're living, if this is God's kingdom right here, right now, established by Christ, it actually means we have a responsibility that we do have to care about what's going on right here, right now. I don't know if any of you have ever read Douglas Adams and The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Any fans of Douglas Adams in the house? One or two at the back there. Excellent. For those of you who don't know Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, these books are about this guy, Arthur, who lives a normal existence here on Earth, uh, who has this friend called Ford, who is actually an alien, 
and named himself after the first thing he saw when he arrived on Earth, but Arthur doesn't realise this because he doesn't realise aliens exist. And the, what he doesn't know is the Earth's about to be destroyed because uh, the Great Planning Commission in the skies decided to do away with it and build a big superhighway all the way right through the middle of it. And so it's a story of how Ford takes Arthur away and they end up having all sorts of adventures and understanding that the world's much bigger than he ever thought or imagined. But don't worry about that. What's it, what, what I want to mention today is actually Douglas Adams comes up with this great device, which I think is absolutely fantastic. Uh, it's a cloaking device. So if you're going to park your spaceship on a planet that doesn't actually realise there's other planets out there and spaceships actually exist, you don't want them to see it because they might freak out a little bit. So Douglas Adams invents this cloaking device called an SEP, which is a someone else's problem device. <laughs> the, whole, the way this device works is you look at this thing and you think, oh, that's someone else's problem, so I can just ignore it and forget about it. And it just goes away and becomes invisible. I think this is fantastic because I have an SEP in my life. I have lots of things that I look at and think, that's not my problem, I'm just going to forget about it and goes away. And God's been challenging me about that uh, this year. And for me, two areas of challenge that I've had, and going back to our word of the day, is what am I doing if, if climate is changing and we need to be more aware uh, of the environment and what, the world around us, what does that mean for me personally and us collectively? This isn't someone else's problem to fix. There's things that I can do uh, as an individual and we can do uh, collectively. The second thing he's challenged me uh, about this year in that regard is my financial giving. This is something that seems to be a recurring theme in my life. Every time I think I've got it sorted, God says, well, actually, have you? Um, and I know Andy Howe and Stefan have stood up um, uh, in front of this church and explained that our giving's lagging behind. And it's so easy for me to sit there and say, well, I, I feel like I give enough, thank you very much. That must be someone else's problem. But God's challenge to me was actually, no, you're part of this community. This is actually your problem. What are you going to do about it? Um, which is great. Thanks, God. Uh, thanks for that. But I think it's important that we understand this, that a lot of the things, uh, and this is why it's important we get this concept that we are actually living in God's kingdom right now and we have a responsibility we can't do everything, and we're not asked to do everything, but God does ask us to do what he calls us to do. So our responsibility is to care for the world he's given us, to care for the people in our lives uh, that he brings along, um, and to pray for those uh, who actually have a responsibility uh, to lead uh, in, our, in our world and our culture, for political leaders, for church leaders, uh, for community leaders. Um, the early church wasn't as concerned about how they got into leadership, um, so they were okay that the leaders were there. They weren't trying to subvert a process or a way of being, but they were concerned with how those rulers ruled. Um, so they had a, uh, as living as Christians meant for them, and when Tom Wright speaks about this, he was referring to the, uh, the episode of Paul and Silas in prison, thrown in prison because they dared to heal a girl who was making a bit of money for their... Um, owners, a slave girl, because she had a gift of prophecy, and was um, uh, Paul and Silas came along. They stopped that, uh, cast out a few demons, and got thrown in prison for their trouble. Not only were they thrown in prison, they were summarily flogged before they got there, um, and then uh, left to rot. But when they were released, rather than just sweep it all on the carpet and say, "Actually, you know, I'm just glad we're out." Uh, they actually felt a responsibility that God was calling them to actually challenge the system of the day and say, hang on a minute here, we're Roman citizens. You can't just flog us and send us into prison. That's not how this works. Uh, 
You must do better as, as leaders in this society. So even we as the church, whilst we may not be concerned with subverting the, uh, the process, we do need to be to stand up and challenge. And Christians through time have done that on big issues, not just small issues, big issues such as slavery. Uh, this is not right. Even Augustine of Hippo, who I mentioned earlier in the 3rd, 4th century, he was one that said, actually, you know what? Slavery isn't consistent uh, with the word of God. Um, we, need to do, we need to do better. <clears throat> so we need to ask ourselves, as individuals and as the church, what is it that God is calling me to do? What is it that God is calling us to do? We can't just divorce ourselves from the here and now. Because the coming of the kingdom of God forces us or impels us to actually live right here and right now as, uh, as agents of his kingdom. That is who we are as a church. When Christ came and established the kingdom, when he left, he said, I'm going, but I'm giving you the spirit so that you might know God and he might uh, support your mission. Because we can't do it alone. Uh, we're not capable of it. But we have God's help in that. So the question I want to leave you with today is, what is God calling you to do? What has God called you to do? And what does that mean for you in 2020, both individually and corporately, as his, as his church? What does it mean for us to say, your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth as in heaven? So, Lord, we just give all these things to you. These are not easy questions, Lord, but I believe they're important questions. And I ask this morning that you would speak to us. What is it that you are calling us to do? Where is it that we have a blind spot? What, are, what have we spent too much time thinking is someone else's problem, but is actually what you're calling us to do? Lord, would you reveal those things to us? And as we uh, walk in unity with one another, would you teach us how to live more and more as your people and as part of your kingdom right here and right now? Amen.